0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking machines, software, genetics, and how all of them are revolutionizing agriculture and in turn revolutionizing the agricultural markets. From autonomous harvesters to real-time data on yields on a global basis to even pricing on constituent components of crops as opposed to bushels of crops themselves. All of this could have a profound impact on the agri-market and how the commodity traders operate. Our guest is Barrett Barr. Barrett is the head of Global Seeds Business Development at Syngenta, the Global Agri-Inputs House, and previously spent 15 years in various roles, including strategy, technology, and agri-economics, at John Deere. As always, we really appreciate reviews and star ratings on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Barrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I'm excited to have this discussion. We're talking about how technology is transforming the agri markets and has transformed the agri markets and what the future might hold. Before we talk about what's going on today can you just take us back to the early 2000s? What were the big developments we've seen over the last, the foundational developments 20 years ago that really started on the path to these incredible yield increases that we've seen you know, around the world, particularly in the US and, and technology's role in that?
1: Sure, Paul. I might even start before that in the early 1990s. That was the time when machines didn't really have much technology on them. If a grower wanted to know their yield, they'd have to deliver their semi-load of corn to the elevator get it weighed and then calculate on a on a per field basis how much yield was came off that acre. In the early 90s, technology started to be added to machines. So GPS was put on machines, yield monitors were put on combines, so a grower could see as they went through the field what their yield looked like on a smaller level in the field. Uh, but also once they got finished with the field, they would know exactly what the yield was. So this was the first time really data was brought into to manage and understand agriculture and that's where uh, agronomists could really start to dig into the data and understand different parts of the field yielded different and so led to uh, the possibility of possibly managing different parts of the field differently
0: yeah we should probably define a couple of terms here i know it sounds a bit prosaic but as a farmer in the agri industry, you're talking about input levels and you're talking about yield, which is outputs. Can you just, you know, what are the key levers that farmers look for, producers look for in terms of understanding how successful they've been?
1: Probably the biggest one, especially historically, is is bushels per acre. So a bushel is roughly, depending on what the crop is, 55 to 60 pounds. So a a good corn yield might be 200 bushels per acre. Then thinking about inputs, Seed, the crop protection chemicals like herbicides and pesticides are, are some of the biggest costs. And then, and of course, fertilizer being added to that. So yield is the biggest thing that growers measure. But then as they get more sophisticated and have better software to manage their inputs and outputs, they can measure a profitability on a per acre basis.
0: Okay, perfect. So back in the late 90s, 2000s, can we first off focus, I guess, on the input side? Because you had... GMO, gene editing. Can you just contextualize that for us and, and where, that, where that all came from and kind of what was going on 20 years ago in that space?
1: Sure. Yeah, before about mid-90s, crops were all conventional, so they didn't have any genetically modified traits. Uh, but biotech was really introduced in the mid-90s. I think 1997 was the Roundup-ready soybeans were introduced. So that was a big paradigm shift in inputs. So a seed had a lot more value because you could spray it with uh, one chemical, in that case Roundup, and it would kill all the the weeds in the field and leave the plants or the crops completely unscathed. There was also other GMO technologies or biotech traits added that were resistant to insects. So if an insect ate the roots of a plant or ate the the leaves of a plant in some cases, the insect would die. So you wouldn't necessarily need to spray uh, an insecticide, could reduce the overall uh, level of chemicals being sprayed and could increase the, the value of the, the crop coming off the field. So less inputs, more outputs coming off was a good time for profitability, but also the seed was a lot more high value so that the seed companies could charge a lot more for that, that seed with the technology embedded in it.
0: And that story is gonna carry through to today and the future, and I guess we'll get there on what the latest developments are on that side. Then on the yield piece, you've got these better seeds or at least these seeds that you're able to better control pests and and weeds and so forth. The introduction of GPS started to have a, even back then, a revolutionary impact on the harvesting equipment and also the the planting equipment, tractors and
1: combine harvesters. Where did that start off in 20 years ago? First, when when these biotech crops were introduced, it became more and more important to understand the impact that these crops were having. So documenting what the yield was when you change from a new higher value seed was important to prove the value that the crops were adding since you're spending a lot more on a on a bag of seed. But I would say the the other big change that happened in the early 2000s, about 20 years ago, as the GPS on the machines got more and more precise, they were accurate down to about the one-inch level. So this this giant machine could navigate to a one-inch level. Adding auto-steering technology onto the machine had many benefits for growers. So thinking back 20 years ago, these Ag machines were able to drive themselves down the field down in perfectly straight rows, which helped in in many different areas. First of all, to help productivity for the grower. So think of a, a farmer operating a machine for roughly 12 hours a day, trying to steer a you know a, a giant machine, in some cases you know, 60 feet wide implements down to a, an inch. So imagine the stress on that grower as they as they're trying to do that while also monitoring all the, the settings in the machine, trying to get the crop planted or, or harvested the right way, it's just a very a mentally taxing task. So if the job of actually steering the machine is, is taken away, the machine can steer itself, it allows that grower to be much more effective at, at what's really adding value in that machine. But also in addition to that, reducing overlap, you know, on that more expensive seed that I was talking about, reducing fuel usage, reducing other inputs and making overall more, more profitable. And this also one other benefit is it allowed since the farmer wasn't trying to steer this giant machine down to an inch, it allowed the machines to get even bigger. So today, the the largest sprayers have a the arms or the booms are 120 130 feet wide, in some cases. So you can't imagine trying to drive a a machine 130 feet wide down to an inch uh, while working you know 12 or 15 hour days. So you, you already alluded to the fact that obviously the seeds had higher value,
0: i.e. they they cost more for the farmer alongside the other inputs that complemented those seeds. Also, you're talking bigger equipment, more sophisticated equipment. What was going on in the economics of farming You know, 20 years ago? Was this sort of the start of a much more business-like approach, a much more industrial approach to farming? What was going on to the size of farms, the type of farmer active in the market? We're predominantly talking at this point in in, in the West, I guess
1: yeah absolutely. Farms continued to get bigger during that period. Uh, with the the bigger machines, it allowed if you had you know one combine, one sprayer, one planter, if you had an older machine that was smaller, you might be able to do eight hundred acres, a thousand acres. But with as machines get bigger, being at scale with one large machine it might be two thousand acres. so one one grower with maybe their family could could operate a much larger operation than they could previously with, with smaller machines enabled by that, uh, that technology. So yeah, big changes there in and, and the economics of the farm. You know, this was the early 2000s, mid 2000s. 2005 was when the renewable fuel standard started. You started seeing a big change in the economics with, with corn prices increasing in value, soybean prices increasing in value. So it, it enabled these investments in technology to become uh, easier payoffs for the growers with with higher priced outputs on their farms so
0: and we're starting to like creep towards you know the last decade when you know all of these i guess these essential foundations have really started to take off you had this move to farmers moving beyond necessarily just yield to looking at profitability how was was there complementary understanding being built services being offered in the 2000s that enabled farmers to better make these decisions what did it do to kind of the the sales team and the, the risk management teams at whether it's one of the agri houses or one of the, the local co-ops
1: yeah absolutely and data management was a big part of what happened and how this technology developed so in the early 2000s data management was pretty rudimentary if you asked a farmer to see their data they probably had a shoebox full of, of thumb drives where, where their data was stored. And if they were getting it in their computer, the software was was relatively difficult to use. So they didn't have the insights that they necessarily could today and understand the you know, marginal effects of an increase in fertilizer usage on, on yield. So it was not as effective as it could be, but it was at least the start of being able to collect data off machines and analyze it to, uh, to add value to your operation. Yeah, because that's going
0: to play an increasingly important role in this discussion, right? The granularity of that data and the transparency of that data to market participants, including the farmers themselves, is is having a, a revolutionizing effect today and even at that point. Okay, so can you kind of take those various threads and weave them through to the present day if you'd like? I mean, maybe we can start off from where auto steer, GPS guided to the inch, large farm equipment was 15 years ago. Well, How has that journey been over the last 15, 20 years? Where, where are we today in terms of the capability of whatever machine it might be?
1: Yeah, I would say automation has gone from steering the machine in straight lines, where the farmer still had to manage all the different settings in the machine, to automating what those settings in the machine are. So part of that was enabled by you know the, the lower cost compute in the machine, but also thinking about tractors combines these implements used to be hydraulically controlled in the past moving from hydraulically controlled implements to electronically controlled allowed much higher precision and and actuation of these of the controllers so when you think about driving your machine through the field as i mentioned that sprayer with 130 foot wide sprayer booms and you're crossing all kinds of terrain and some cases you're overlapping where you went before having that machine being able to understand where each piece of the sprayer boom has been on the field before and being able to turn that each individual nozzle on and off so there's zero overlap across the whole field. It's a you know, really good way of reducing input usage, improving profitability, but also improving sustainability. So maybe maybe one example of that is sprayers going through the field at roughly 15 miles an hour. You come up to a waterway or a, an area where the, the water flows through the field that's usually left in grass. As you go through the waterway you don't want to spray that part because you don't want to kill the grass since it's reducing erosion so if you cross it each individual nozzle can turn off at exactly the right time as you're crossing that so you don't spray the waterway and then as it comes out of the waterway each nozzle independently turns itself on so that you spray right when you get back onto the crop area
0: how does that work are they mapping at what point does that machine itself understand, you know, using technology to understand that that was what the farmer would desire or these fields becoming completely
1: mapped prior to, prior to being treated? Yep. Each individual field is mapped. So it's, 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 each field is probably mapped a long time ago. And every year the field goes through it or the farmer goes through it, there's boundaries set up that mark the waterways, they mark the outsides of the field. So this, this implement, whether it's sprayer or planter knows exactly where the crop should go or crop is, so they can apply the the product there and not areas where where they don't want it or where it's overlapping
0: what i mean i'm interested in that seems such a revolutionary change in terms of the requirements and knowledge and capability of the of the farmer cost of the machinery you know the size of the fields et cetera from twenty years ago that must have fundamentally changed the economics the market structure in farming i mean for example i'm assuming these machines are of such capability and size and cost that you know these aren't this is no longer equipment that the farmer would own themselves or you know agri-economics is your
1: background can you sort of frame that up for us yeah good question because you're right that the value or the cost of these machines have increased so much over the last decade last 20 years where the the most expensive combines I believe are now, you know, pushing a million dollars for for a machine. But when you think about the value proposition that these companies have, they're looking at each individual dollar investment and the payoff period that the farmer will have in order to to pay it off or make it worthwhile for them. And if it's if it's not worthwhile, then the farmer's not going to buy it. So they have to prove out what that value is, or the or the grower's not gonna not going to make that investment because it's a, obviously a huge investment for a for a small small business person. But when you think about the size of farms getting bigger, one farmer that combine might cover 2,500 acres. It's a much more productive machine and allows for much better outcomes than they have been before. because You're reducing the, the inputs in other areas, so that machine is able to to provide a really good payoff for the farmer, even though it costs you know potentially a million dollars.
0: How does this map globally? Because of course, when I think of Europe, the UK, you know, you've got a farms plotted dating back a thousand years, right? Much smaller lots. You've got hedgerows that you know, need to be maintained for sustainability, et cetera. Is this across Europe? We're seeing this across the world, or is this very much sort of a, a US uh, and Australia? What, talk to us a bit sort of
1: geographically where these changes have really been felt. It's really a worldwide phenomenon. So you can imagine it's a lot of this has led in, led in the US. We're seeing Australia as one of the earliest adopters of, of ag technology. You know, some of the companies that are really pioneering technology. So something like a sea and spray technology, which the machine goes down the field, takes a picture of every plant in the field. The machine can understand if that's a a weed or a crop. And if it's a weed, it sprays it. If it's a crop, it leaves it alone. So that that sort of technology, which can reduce herbicide usage by up to 80, 90%. I and mean, some of those technologies are being invented in, in Australia. Some are developed in US, but we're really seeing adoption in across Brazil, Europe, even, you know, I was down in South Africa for a trip a couple of years ago and the level of technology adoption in, in South Africa was was really impressive. And the customers I was talking to or, you know, what they were desiring from, from their technology was, was really forward thinking. So I was really impressed with, with uh, the level of technology adoption across geographies, which, which really makes sense since commodity markets are global, that you'd have these different farmers competing in different regions. But still trying to use the most productive technology they could to get the highest amount of output with the lowest amount of cost.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to the economics. I'm, i I kind of you know, I want to see if actually uh, profitability has changed at all when you're replacing million-dollar machines with uh, some farm hands. You know, what's the what's the output? But we'll come back to that. The other thing you note in our previous discussions for this episode about what's gone on, at least more recently, has been a move from kind of field-level management down to a row, even a plant-level management. Can you help us understand that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really big advancement in the last few years. That's one of the things I mentioned with the seed Spray, with differentiating between a crop and a weed, is being able to reduce herbicide usage by you know up to 90%. But I think one of the other big issues there is as images are collected in different geographies around the world, those images are sent up back to the cloud to whether it's a field views cloud from from Bayer or or John Deere's cloud or whoever it might be, that data can be analyzed across geographies and sent back down to the machines with insights that are gained across geographies. So if a machine encounters something 600 miles away from your farm, it learns what that is, it sends the insight back to the cloud, it can send that insight back down to your machine. So even though your machine has never encountered anything like that, it can take the learnings of somebody else's machine to make its operation better. So leveraging that full fleet for for intelligence, and it's similar to the approach that uh, somebody like a Tesla would do, where machines are, are always getting updated, their algorithms are always improving. So the the idea is you might buy a machine this year, and two years down the road, when, you're, when your machine is two years old, it's it performs better than it would Today, and I think it provides the opportunity to manage at that plant level, and not just the spring with the herbicide, but understanding exactly what the plant needs and giving it whether it's fertilizer or herbicide or, or whatever that might be to improve the the outcomes of each individual plant. That just seems fascinating to me. So, in the context of the
0: commodities markets and even you know trading places and the crop report, like, it sounds to me like one of these equipment manufacturers therefore has real time data. And the ability to forecast on crop yields at a granular level, where else is that information going? Is that information yet being connected to markets, the commodity markets? And so the traders, risk management risk managers are able to are they essentially seeing the flow of oil from the wellhead in real time and being able to aggregate all that and come up with a price? I mean what's the connectivity to the market?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And and this the data, like you said, is being collected in real time. So whether it's planting data, acres being planted in whether it's Midwestern US or Brazil or, or Europe, that data is basically in real time being sent back up to up to the cloud, and, and harvest data as well, yield per acre. So if, if planting data or yield data is different than expectations, that provides an opportunity to make a play in the market and, and potentially make some money on that. So today, each individual grower owns their data so even though the the data might reside within the cloud of one of these major input companies the input company doesn't own the data the the grower does and in the contracts of these companies they don't allow themselves to to trade even though it might be tempting for some it's uh they don't allow themselves to trade the data but i i would say the opportunity is all these companies have apis so if a grower wanted to send their data outside of the, that cloud, they can they can send it to whomever they want as long as there's an API relationship. I think the challenge is if one grower sends their data to a, to a trader, let's say, that one grower's data is not going to be very useful for that trader. They need to have a, a diverse geographically diverse data set that's representative of the of that geography. so that once that data came in, they could understand if, if it's a big enough sample size to make a make an informed trade based on that data. But there really hasn't been anybody that's pulled together enough scale to allow that to happen yet. So that's still uh, an opportunity out there. I think people see it, but it's really a, an untapped untapped opportunity just because that coordination cost is is really high. I hear that, and I just
0: think about uh, large-scale hedge funds going to offer the farmers discount if they also provide their data to them as well, right? Exactly. Seems an incredible opportunity.
1: Maybe one challenge with that is each individual's grower's data is not worth that much money. It's the aggregate of the, the data together that's worth a lot of money. So yeah. it, it's hard to say I would pay a grower X dollars for their data because one grower's data is not that valuable. It's, it's when you get that scale, it's when it really adds value.
0: Yeah, and it's also kind of, I guess, props to the uh, equipment manufacturers who aren't asking farmers to sign away the rights to that data in the terms and the you know, conditions and the agreements that I sign
1: pretty much every day logging onto a new website, whatever it might be yeah that's that's exactly right, but that'd be a good way to lose farmers' trust pretty quickly if that was if that was buried in that contract somewhere
0: yes, exactly right okay so that's probably a, a thread that will carry through to the future because I think it is unique in some ways that you've got this a that most of the production is in the hands of private investors, private individuals, and you've got this incredible granularity of data that's available on a global basis, and you know it's being produced it's just not necessarily yet being consumed efficiently by the commodities markets, that might change. What has it done for the economics of farming itself? Has farming become more lucrative, less lucrative, or is it just the, the typical good years, bad years, et cetera?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, and you know, as a commodity markets guy, ag economist, I, I always think commodity markets tend to go to zero profitability. So if, if, a, if a grower adopts a new technology, they might have an edge for a few years. But as, as everybody adopts that technology, that edge erodes away and it's, it's back, to, back to lower lower profitability levels. So I think that's why a lot of these growers want to stay on the leading edge of, of this, these technologies being introduced, of the latest seeds, the latest crop protection uh, chemicals, the, the, the latest ag tech, because it gives them an edge to be able to earn, earn higher profitability. And staying at that, the forefront of that, you can maintain a, a level of profitability. But if, if everybody adopts it, just like the Econ 101 would say, it's, it's going to go back down to lower profitability levels. Yeah, cost of, of variable production. Exactly. But I, I would say there's a difference between a, a land renter and a land owner. So a renter is giving away most of that profitability to the, the landlord, where if you own the land, you have a, an opportunity to internalize more of that uh, the profitability, especially with with farm prices going up as high as they have that the capital gains on on farmland has has allowed farmers to be pretty profitable
0: yeah on that slight segue or slight divergent topic just on that you do hear a lot in the press at least about the zeitgeist out there that these farms are essentially um, perishable assets right or they are going to be exhausted given the intensity of the agriculture is that is that you know, is that a, a recognized fact or does that remain very much speculation? Where, where are we at on kind of farm longevity with just these intensive measures?
1: It's a really good question. It's a really hot trend in agriculture right now is thinking about soil health and long-term viability of soils. And you've seen in some geographies around the world and in, in Brazil, there's, there's some degraded soil, which is, is not very productive or useful anymore. In uh, some areas of China that's that's happened in, in some cases. and that's why that there's been a, a big trend and I, I like to think about land or farming like a, almost like a stock. You have your your capital gains and you have your dividend where your your dividend is your annual farm profitability. and that's been the biggest focus for farmers for almost forever, where your, your capital gains, you have an opportunity to invest back into your soil to improve your, your long term profitability of your land and, and get capital gains off of that land if you decide to sell it at some point in the future. So I think that's been a, a shift over the last few years is that focus on how can I further improve soil health so that I can improve my profitability over the long term as opposed to just year to year. And uh, make it more resilient to droughts, make it more resilient to floods. At the same time, there's there's programs put, being put in place like carbon markets. That are paying farmers to increase the carbon content in their soil or, or sequester carbon from the air, which has you know many benefits for the farmer taking carbon out of the air, but it also has co-benefits like improving water quality. So a lot of a lot of uh, momentum in that area of of re- what we call regenerative agriculture, putting more focus on you know how can we sustain the land and not not degrade it, but actually improve it back to uh, where it was historically.
0: Yes, and so I guess we're looking towards the future now, and that first is a big theme that you've identified. You've just spoken about kind of farming profit plus as opposed to just profits so profit plus sustainability. And and actually, these are wise, in the most part, quite wise economic decisions for the farmer for, for the longer-term use of the land. One of the trends that you identified, and perhaps this goes back to those attributes as well as some of the gene editing we spoke about at the start of the episode is perhaps being um, a greater discrimination between different crops depending on their provenance and their attributes. And this is a trend that's going on across even mining and energy and all the rest of it. There's this sort of theme of decommoditizing commodities on the basis that consumers are going to, and they already are, paying a different differential price for organic or whatever it might be. How is technology unlocking that what do you What do you see as you look towards the next ten years? How does that link into the economics of of farming?
1: Basically, forever, commodities have been grown to be higher yielding and more resilient in the field, so the the variance on yield can be lower. I think there's an opportunity with some of the big changes in the market we've seen over the last few years, something like alternative proteins that have have come up as as a huge game changer. Renewable diesel has come up, and, and it's been mentioned on some of your previous podcasts as, as huge opportunities, especially in the, the U.S. and Europe. Sustainable aviation fuels the same way. When you're selling crops just as commodities at standards, they're not necessarily hitting the, the specifications or the, the product profiles that would be ideal for these these new use cases. Soybeans as they are today, corn as they are today might be really good for feeding cattle, feeding hogs, feeding poultry, but it might not be the right product for for alternative proteins like Impossible Burgers and, and things like that. You know, needing to focus on different attributes like the color of the soybean, the, the taste, the texture, and, and different, uh, different attributes like that, which is could be very specific to the end use. And it's not, uh, commodity crops aren't necessarily fitting that, that goal. So historically, there hasn't been any really differentiation from a, a pricing perspective. But I think you know one example we could use is wheat in Australia, where there's a, a price premium in some cases paid for for high protein wheat. That's a, an example of what could be done potentially in areas like like the US or Europe when it comes to renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel. If you have a canola that's a higher oil content, if you have a corn that has higher oil or uh, soybeans in that in other case, there's an opportunity to uh, incentivize that that higher value of production from the grower but also from the seed companies and also internalize some of that profit for the for the downstream the crusher the or or others in the value chain that could utilize that uh, that higher value oil
0: i know from work that we've done as hc group it goes beyond just perhaps overexpressing certain proteins to create more particular high value oil in in soy or whatever it might be to also introducing new proteins to be expressed to give attributes to the plant that make it more digestible for livestock or even include things like antibiotics and other other attributes into the crop itself where's the state of technology in in that and where could that be over the next decade and beyond
1: the germplasm or the the genetic base of crops like soybeans corn is is very broad and diverse so some of it can be just be done by selection if you're selecting for high oil or a certain protein, you can get that from, you don't have to use any biotech techniques. So that could be a shorter term. But in the longer run, using those techniques like gene editing to amplify different DNA, different attributes, so that you can get the the higher oil content you want or the different protein characteristics that you want that can be tailored for exactly the end use that you're looking for. So I think, I think there are some pretty big opportunities there in, in the short term, just by selecting, but also long term using some of those gene editing or biotech techniques.
0: Still, I guess, talking about you can amplify different attributes. Where could that go? I mean, weaving in the sustainability piece, I mean, you know, I don't understand any work that HC Group has done in the past, you know, working with organizations that are looking to introduce new genes for, that uh, express an entirely new set of proteins that have a desired outcome in either livestock or wherever it might be. I mean, where could we be in a decade?
1: Yeah, good question. One example of that is a, a seed that Syngenta actually has, and we've we've started. It's it, it was historically developed for ethanol to make ethanol plants more efficient and, and reduce costs there. But it's also really effective in in cattle, especially dairy cattle, at reducing methane emissions. So thinking that the biggest challenges of dairy is 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 the methane and greenhouse gas emissions. So this energy corn, when used in a in a ration, can reduce greenhouse gases or, or methane from that cow by something like five to eight percent so it's an example of changing the makeup of of a corn or of a corn or of a, a seed so that you can get better outcomes that specifically designed for a whether it's a, a animal and livestock or a, a production process but I think there's a lot of other opportunities like that especially as we're beginning to prioritize greenhouse gas reduction and sustainability more and more
0: yeah fascinating I mean the possibilities there are enormous okay so i guess we've talked about kind of the some of the new balance scorecard that's coming in for farmers as they look to you know the sustainability and there's obviously policies around that talked about some of the future of the, the the seed side and some of the gene editing opportunities there going back to where we started and, and talk about the fun bit of big machines um where where is can autonomy Autonomous systems, AI, machine learning. You know, what are what are the machines of the future going to be in industrial farming?
1: Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting decade. Cause I think we're just on the verge of of getting towards full autonomy in machines. Probably not for all machines in, in every task, but some of the simpler tasks like like tillage, there's an opportunity for full autonomy in the next, I would say, three or four years. And I'd say it's it's building a lot. We talked about building a lot on some of the, the auto technologies on uh, the compute in the machine that can actually do the, the crunching of the images. The cameras are, are lower costs. The modeling techniques from a machine learning perspective are, are more advanced. But also when you're thinking about a, a machine going through the field, fastest machine going through might be going 15 miles an hour, where a car coming down the road is going 75. So it, there's a difference in probably the risk tolerance. So you can stop a, a machine quite a bit faster than you could stop a car going 75. And there's fewer obstacles, obviously, in a in a cornfield that you might need to stop for. The challenge, though, with with auton- full autonomy in a in a machine is where a car is thinking about going from point A to point B. Really, the only considerations are safety and comfort of the of the people riding inside. A machine is trying to optimize many different settings on the machine that otherwise the human would be would be monitoring and and adjusting. So the machine needs to really internalize those tasks and create. Algorithms behind each one of those tasks so that you can actually automate the entire machine, leading to that full autonomy. So, there's, there's quite a few tasks, and that's why the, the simplest tasks like tillage are being handled first, because the, when you think about planting and, and harvesting, there's a lot more things to think about and, and automate on the machine.
0: So, you say four to five years out. So, what's the real, what are the real, you've, obviously, there's a lot of systems, as you just pointed out, that need to be tackled and dealt with. What's the real hurdle, though?
1: I would say one of the big ones is is monitoring the performance so if you're going down a field if you're you have a 120 foot wide planter for example one of the planter row units gets plugged if there's no monitor on that row unit and there's no person in the machine that machine might just go ahead and plant you know the rest of your 400 acres without anybody knowing that it was plugged if you have a person in there they can see that if you don't have a person in there it's it's not going to be notified and you won't notice until you have a, a missing row in your cornfield, you know, three weeks after it's uh, come out of the out of the ground. So being able to just understand what's happening on the machine and have monitors for every little thing on the machine is is really important.
0: But we're going to get there, right? Can we? absolutely. In the next decade, we're going to have machines crawling around fields doing not just tillage, but maybe, you know, plants, planting and harvesting the farmers, you know, sat in a central control observation point somewhere in the middle of his property, you know, seeing what,
1: which machines are stopping at any given point. I think one of the really interesting things that's going to happen is machines have gotten bigger and bigger. And the reason they've gotten bigger is to scale one human's labor over more and more acres to make that human more productive. But when you get the human out of the machine, do you really need such a big machine? Are you going to strap on the the autonomy kit onto your old large tractor combine sprayer? Or does it make more sense to have fleets of smaller machines that can do a job maybe better without as much compaction on the on the field without, you know, being able to operate in muddy conditions, where a large machine can't do that. I think the other possibility is these machines being able to stay you know, vigilant all the time, analyzing crops on a daily weekly basis, as opposed to the machine going through the field and applying a product, you know, four or five, six times a year. So being able to monitor plants, on a weekly basis, understanding what they need and giving spoon feed them the nutrients that they need, I think is a is a way that you can take both the profitability and sustainability to the next level.
0: Yeah, and I assume smaller machines, you know, battery charge, recharge overnight, you know, is a vastly different carbon footprint for uh, industrial agriculture than uh, than it is today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, all the machines I've seen are are still diesel and gas powered, but I think. Battery powered is, is is going to be coming at some point soon, especially as the cost of batteries is dropping rapidly.
0: So coming full circle, you know, I'm just fascinated by this. Part of this is when I look at the different you know, the three big pillars of commodities: energy, metals, ags. Metals and energy have a lot of similarities in how they trade, price discovery, the opportunity for traders. In agri, it's very different. We had Jonathan Kingsman earlier in the year, come on and really talk about why that is. And there's lots of things that contribute to it. But in order for these traders to be profitable in the agri world, outside some event-driven outliers and some successful hedge funds, they have to have this incredible asset footprint to be able to get all this, you know, to to optimize that value chain and take advantages of uh, events. The idea that even today, right now, we have real-time yield data globally available Well, being created not available for farmers where does this end up are the agri markets as a result of this technological change going to become just even even more transparent and efficient so that you know you've got a farmer he has a a a real-time access to yield data and also has real-time access to pricing data becoming just so efficient in how they distribute their, uh, they sell their crops. I mean, kind of, I'd, I'd love to get your kind of take on agri-trading in 10 years when you put all of these trends and technological changes together.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, I think some of the factors that you mentioned, like level of constituents in the grain, I think that can be monitored a lot more closely than it has in the past, like oil levels, protein levels. I don't know if, the, if there's ever going to be a consolidated data set with that real-time data coming off the machines. It's it's possible, like like we talked about, we'll, we'll have to figure out a business model that makes sense for the farmer to profit from sharing their data because they're not going to want to share it if they're not benefiting from that sharing. But also, I think you can add on some other sources of data. So satellite has become incredibly more high resolution and, and valuable in the last five, even five years with those low Earth orbit satellites you know, going over each point in the globe once a day, basically, so you can get real time data on what's happening. So I think bringing together other sources of data like that, I think will be valuable. Putting together a business model that makes sense for farmers so that they're excited to share their, their data and they they benefit from that as well.
0: Well, challenge thrown down, I think. There are there are similar initiatives I think about for uh, retail gas stations, petrol stations in the UK, where there's these sinks of a lot of data. And it's how do you commercialize that that makes sense for both sides. It's interesting what you just said there. And it kind of struck me. You're going from yield data as well to essentially content of that yield as well, right? Like, you know, uh, it comes back to that kind of decommoditizing commodities point. You know, it might not just be per bushel anymore. It might be protein level or oil level
1: per bushel, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Or how much oil is coming off a cornfield, how much starch is coming off a cornfield as opposed to just bushels per acre. And not only are we going to be talking about constituent yields, we're going to be talking about environmental outcomes as well. As I mentioned, regenerative agriculture is a, is a big trend that's happened in the last few years. I think there's a few areas where farmers can really make a difference there. Adding cover crops to their operation, reducing the amount of tillage or changing up tillage practices that are more suitable for retaining carbon in the soil, but also increasing that the crop diversity or crop rotation. So in, in a lot of the Midwestern U.S., it's corn and soybeans, and that's basically the, the two crops that are the choices. If they want to grow a, a new crop if they want to introduce winter wheat or or canola there's really nowhere to deliver that crop so that i think that's one additional challenge that we're gonna to have to work through from a, a regenerative ag perspective is how can we encourage growers to increase the diversity of their crops while also giving them a place to deliver those crops that doesn't uh, include a you know several hundred mile trip with their semi
0: well and i think that's something that probably would be solutions that the the agri houses are going to want to start providing, right? Absolutely. Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion. I really, really enjoyed it, and all the the pre-discussions that we've had as well. You know, I look forward to uh, hopefully having you back on in in a couple of years and and see where we are then, because it's just a fascinating topic.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Paul. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Barry.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.